Hi, I'm Dr. Ellen, the Midlife Whisperer, and I hear you and I've got you. Think of me as the one-stop shop for all your midlife needs. I'm a psychologist, registered dietitian, nutritionist, board-certified health and wellness coach, and mindful self-compassion teacher. I'm also an author and podcast host with over 30 years of experience empowering midlife women. Welcome to Rock Your Midlife. I'm Dr. Ellen, the Midlife Whisperer, and I am thrilled that you are here today because we have a power-packed show that's all about menopause. And here's the thing, menopause can be hell. You may be experiencing a slew of unpleasant symptoms from hot flashes and brain fog to fatigue. However, what you may not realize is that when menopause is necessary, suffering is not. So wherever you are at in your menopause journey, you can feel better and get healthier by changing your lifestyle. That's right. There are so much that you can do starting today to feel better and also improve your overall health. What's key is eating the right foods at the right time, exercising, reducing stress, and certain supplements and medications may also help you. Today, you can take action by listening to my guest, Dr. Mary Claire Haber, and following her advice. Dr. Haber is a wife, she's a mom, she's a physician, and an entrepreneur who has devoted her adult life to women's health. As a board-certified OBGYN, Dr. Haber delivered thousands of babies, completed thousands of well-women exams, counseled patients, taught residents, and did everything an academic professor and OBGYN could do. But as her patient population aged, Dr. Haber was overwhelmed with a number of complaints and concerns her patients had with weight gain while going through menopause, probably something that she didn't hear too much about in medical school. And for years, she told her patients, like I told my patients as a dietitian initially, eat less and exercise more. But it wasn't until she too experienced the changes of menopause and midlife weight gain that she realized that this advice didn't work and ultimately led to her creating and developing her online program and writing her book. I have it here. It's The Galveston Diet. And it really is an amazing book uh, with actual tools and recipes and meal plans to help you reach health and wellness goals through an anti-inflammatory approach to nutrition. Dr. Haber is a leading voice on social media in the realm of menopause education. She has over 2 million followers on TikTok and is very engaged on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. And she is here to share her midlife knowledge and wisdom. Thank you so much, Dr. Haber, for being here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's amazing. Your story is amazing. And I would love to know off the bat, why did you decide to devote your practice to menopause care? So when I, it's social media, to be honest. Um, I, when I finished my training in 2002, that was the year the Women's Health Initiative um, initial data was released. And it scared the heck out of all of us. Like, Hormone therapy was pretty regularly recommended um, and prescribed prior to that date um, in appropriate populations. And we had just this abrupt upheaval of, you know, what in women's in, in menopause care. And so as I left my training, you know, the, the word on the street was don't prescribe it. It's going to give your patient cancer or give your patient hormone therapy. And the, the actual data when they, there was a press conference, when all that was released and got, you know, blasted out in the press, the paper hadn't even been published yet. And so there wasn't time for like 
my professors at the time or, or anyone to kind of read the studies and do some critical thinking and really look at the numbers. And it's it's only now, 22 years later, that we're starting to see, you know, a um, walking back, re-looking at the data, you know, um, and and undoing of kind of the damage that had been done. And so here I am practicing for, you know, years. I was, when you get out and start, most of us start at the same age as our patients, you know, I'm having babies, they're having babies. I'm done with childbearing, they're done with childbearing. I'm starting to go through the changes associated with menopause. You know, it's kind of like you you get your little tribe and you grow with them. Cause I stayed in the same practice for, you know, 15 years. And I started seeing, you know, more and more of my patients were becoming perimenopausal, menopausal, and just increasing complaints, increasing symptoms. And I was feeling less and less competent to take care of them because the things I was recommending weren't working. I mean, it was pretty standard to recommend an SSRI, an antidepressant medication for menopause treatment, you know, because we were scared to give them hormone therapy and it wasn't being propagated through the literature, through, you know, our American Board of OB-GYN that, whoa, 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 we're walking these this back. And this actually is a lot safer than what was blown out of proportion, you know, in 2002. And so I get on social media initially to talk about weight gain in menopause. It was everyone's pain point. It was kind of the initial thing that the frustration was coming from. It's like people were expected to have hot flashes and night sweats and sleep disruption and muscle through it. But it was the 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 psychological, the emotional trauma that this unexplained weight gain, and especially in the midsection, was driving my patients crazy. And then it happened to me. So as I began this conversation across social media and started exploding on TikTok, I started, you know, people were asking more and more about other things, about, you know, the, the stories of them being dismissed in their doctor's office, told they were crazy, not being treated. And I started following other kind of menopause, you know, OB-GYNs. There's like a handful of us really. And listening to their, and, and all of a sudden I'm getting hundreds, thousands of comments of help me, help me, help me. I'm not, no one's treating me and I'm getting dismissed. And then you see this rise of this cottage industry of, of hormone therapy where they're not really staying, you know, they're, they're kind of making things up and, and cherry picking data. And, you know, I'm like, wait a minute, where's the clear evidence? We have FDA approved formulations and we're not offering them to patients. They're having to go off the reservation to people who might mean well, but really aren't following standards and charging thousands of dollars for hormone therapies. When you can get an FDA bioidentical approved option with your insurance from Walgreens for about $20 a month, you know, very affordable. And, and so I'm like, wait, we're doing this wrong. So I had left traditional practice in 2018 to focus on the Galveston diet. So I wanted to go part-time. There was nothing available at the institution that the hours I wanted to work. So I went and became a hospitalist which is you live in the hospital on your shift and you take care of everything that comes in the doors through the emergency department, through labor and delivery. And you call the doctor on call. Okay. I have this patient who's da, 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 da. And if they can't make it in for the delivery, you are there. It's, 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 um, it was a fun job and it's always very exciting. And then COVID hit. So the fun job got a lot tougher as all everything in medicine did. And um, so I did that through the first few waves of COVID and worked much more hours than I ever anticipated, but I felt like I was doing something helpful. And then after in 2021, like really started at the beginning of that year, started thinking, okay, 
I'm ready to exit this, but I really want to focus on menopause care. And I didn't even know how to do that. And so I've never, I've always been employed. I've never opened my own practice. So I called some of my friends who were doing like concierge medicine. And I, I, I was like interested, but I didn't want to follow that exact model. I really wanted to follow evidence. I, you know, I didn't want to go well off into some of the, some of the functional stuff is amazing, but you know, they're not, there's no like governing board that governs functional yeah. medicine. So people call themselves functional medicine. And some of them are doing things that I would just consider malpractice. And so I was like, I think I have an opportunity here to build what I want the way I want it and give the care that I would want to receive. And so, and it was really governed and guided by my followers on social media telling me what they needed. Yeah. I love that because not only is this how you got into what you're going into, but it's just a really great example for any menopause, any, any midlife woman who is listening. I'm always talking about like, how do you know yourself, find your path. And it really sounds like you followed your curiosity. You saw a problem out there. You saw a gap and you kind of let things lead you to where you are now, which is amazing. So I'm wondering what was it like when you started looking at all of the information about inflammation? Because we know as estrogen declines, inflammation right. goes up, muscle loss goes up, bone loss goes you know, muscle loss, bone loss all go up and nobody was talking, at least when I became a dietitian, exactly. nobody was talking about inflammation. And um, no one was talking about inflammation in relation to menopause through my whole training. None of the articles put forth for me to maintain my certification, you know, in OBGYN. When you look at, when you look at um, PubMed, which is where I go to do, you know, it's a repository from the National Institutes of Health. It's where we go to look for peer-reviewed journal articles. So when I'm looking for, is shoulder, is frozen shoulder related to menopause? That's where I go, okay? And so I typed in the word pregnancy and um, and just 1.1 million articles came up, the, the article count. I was like, okay. I typed in the word menopause and 94,000 articles came up. Wow. So when you, you think about, you know, why it is that we're not being taught or, in, you know, there's, there's a social issue, there's a cultural issue, there's a misogynistic issue, there's a paternalistic issue. And, um, you know, I, in my journey, I went to the PhD nutritionists at the university I was employed at when I was frustrated with the weight gain and we're like, Hey, tell me what is going on in menopause. They said, well, we have a better handle on what's going on in aging and the elderly. And here's what we know. So they were handing me articles to read about muscle loss, inflammation, aging, inflammation. And then I was starting to pull in the menopause data. And there was just some new articles talking about inflammatory markers and associated with menopause alone outside of just aging. So I was like, okay, okay, this is all connected, you know, and like, I can't be the first person who's thought of this, you know, um, maybe I'm just the first effective communicator on social media to talk about about it. But so I got fascinated about, okay, what can we do to lower chronic inflammatory markers outside of drugs? You know, well, there's not great drugs to do that. We have acute inflammatory lowers like Tylenol and Motrin and, you know, the non-steroidals, but all the evidence pointed to food. Yeah, it is really true. I mean, you can't prescribe food. And just to say, if you're listening, wondering what the heck is inflammation? Inflammation is something that your immune system does naturally. We think about acute inflammation, you know, you cut your finger, you break a bone, you get a, you get a cold and your body goes in and it fights the disease and heals you. Right. But then what chronic inflammation, it just continues. It's triggered by something, but then it continues. And chronic inflammation is at the basis 
of the menopause symptoms and off the basis of most major chronic diseases, heart disease, cancer, Alzheimer's. So we really- Autoimmune, diabetes. Autoimmune, right. Yeah. And, and mm -hmm. diet is the way. Yeah. So I, I, I was like, we're missing something. All I was taught in medical school and residency, all I've told my patients for years was work out more, eat less. And good nutrient. We knew about calories. We knew about um, what a carbohydrate was, what a protein was, what an amino acid was. We knew kind of the basics, but as far as like the intricate functioning of micronutrients in your system and how they work. And, and we knew about the big deficiencies like scurvy for vitamin C and rickets, you know, that cause like horrific disease states, but nothing else. And it's almost like good nutrition was like porn. You know it when you see it, you know, the way that the Supreme Court, you know, defined porn. And it was like, tell her to eat healthy. She just needs to eat healthy. How does she eat healthy? And the only meal plan I'd ever seen in my career was for a diabetic diet for pregnancy. And it had been Xerox so many times. I don't know how old it was. It, you could barely read it. You know, it was probably mimeographed and then right. Xerox. That's how old it was. And it was like two tortilla, you know, it, I, I just... It just befuddles me like how important nutrition is and how the nutrition education in most medical, now it's getting better in small pockets, but it's just not taught, not appreciated. And the registered dietitians on a hospital team are some of the lowest members of the totem pole. Yeah, we're usually in the basement next to the morgue. Yeah, and they're cooking up, you know, TPN. Right. And, you know, doing or asked to do Betty Crocker meal plans. Yeah, and exactly. so instead of being an integral part of the care of the patient, so I went back to school at Tulane. I found a program that offered something called culinary medicine. It's basically medical nutrition, but we had to go to test kitchens and we had to cook and make meals and take something that was like ragu spaghetti with, you know, noodles and then transform it and teach patients how to do that. So that was kind of, you know, how I ended up being feeling like I was qualified to speak on this subject because I didn't learn it in medical school. Yeah. I've heard, been told that the average doctor gets maybe an hour of nutrition, maybe. which is crazy mm -hmm. because we do crazy. know, like, you know, going back to Hippocrates, you are what you eat and let food be thy medicine. It's so true. So let's talk about the specifics. So I know that the major things that you're focusing on are the macronutrients. So the combination of fat, protein, and carbohydrates, right? Certainly so more plant foods and inflammation and in, I'm sorry, and intermittent fasting. So let's talk, take a look at each of those. Sure. So, um, when, you know, certain themes would pop up in the data as far as lowering inflammation. And so one of it was this, you know, phenomena of fasting, this practice of fasting. And I really was drawn to Mark Matson's um, research when he was with the NIH, I believe he's retired now. And uh, he was doing a lot of studies in neuroinflammation specifically in Alzheimer's and dementia models and looking at fasting as a way to lower neuroinflammation. And he was having pretty much breakthrough um, um, he has a really great TED talk. If your followers want to Google that, it's it's amazing. And, you know, here's a guy, he's working for the NIH. He is not making a ton of money. You know, he's not trying to sell you a supplement or whatever. He's just talking about the practice of fasting and how powerful it can be. And so I said, you know what, this maybe isn't a fad. Let's, let's experiment with this on myself. And I was like, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. I broke my fast in 20 minutes of awakening. I would dump all kinds of stuff in my coffee. And I was like, oh, how am I going to do this? You know, I want my coffee the way I want it. And I would travel with equal, 
in a Ziploc, you know, so I could make my coffee the way I like to drink it. I swore I would never drink black coffee. My husband did. And that was disgusting. And I was like, okay, mine never matter. You can do this. And so I found all these tricks to like cut the bitterness and coffee. And it took a couple of weeks. So that my first step was to learn how to enjoy my coffee black. Now, if you don't drink coffee or tea in the morning, you're fine, you know? And then the next thing was to slowly push out my eating window over 15 minute increments over three to four days. So like I used to break my fast at 6.30, then I made it to 6.45. And I did that for several days until that felt natural and comfortable. Then I pushed it out another 15 minutes. And by walking it out slowly, I was able within about six weeks to become fasting adapted and really with little to no discomfort. Or, you know, and I thought, wow. And it's the morning where I was thinking better. I was, my brain fog was so, I was so much clearer, so much able, I get so much more work done during my fasted state. And there's good science behind why that happens. Um, yeah, it's so true. Okay. I do the same thing. And also, you know, I was taught as a dietitian too, is like eat tons of carbs, eat, you know, and we got that piece wrong. I mean, I remember when I was in dietetic school, it was, you know, low fat, low fat, low fat. Mm -hmm. And so we were pushing everybody to eat 10% fat and eat tons of carbohydrates. And, you know, lo and behold, I end up, you know, 20 years later with Hashimoto's disease. My thyroid is attacked because of all of this wheat that I ate, but it is crazy what we're taught, but you feel great in the morning when you wait till like, you know, 10, 11 o'clock to eat. Yeah. So, and I, I, uh, my daughter is, I, we, off camera, we had talked about it. Catherine's a nutrition science about to graduate. And, you know, she's constantly pulling articles. There's some interesting stuff coming out and she's looking for women's health specifically. So, and you have to like realize some of these studies are done in 25 year old male athletes. And so I was really trying to find the data done on at least women and for help us please, at least women our age, you know, cause we are not 25 year old men and we, our bodies react very differently to things, but it seemed that fasting doesn't affect your hormone levels at all and really was powerful, especially in older women with decreasing signs of, of chronic inflammation. So I was like, okay, let's do that. And then I looked at the quality of nutrition. That was where I went back to school at Tulane and learned all kind of stuff about, you know, I knew that a plant-based diet um, would be, so there's a great study that came out recently looking at plant-based diet versus standard American diet. Now those are two very, very different things. Okay. And it looks specifically at hot flashes and if the women with plant-based diet had less vasomotor symptoms than women who did not. Now we suspected, and they also gave them soybeans, extra soy, and, um, they had like a cup of soybeans and plant-based. And so, um, and, but they didn't compare it to like Mediterranean diet or, you know, other things that are Galveston diet, you know, considered to be healthy where you are enjoying some lean meats, you know, for your protein needs. Um, and so, you know, I knew that plant-based would be automatically anti-inflammatory. So, you know, leafy greens, legumes, seeds, nuts, things rich in phytoestrogens, things rich in anthocyanins, things rich in all those phytochemicals that are naturally found in foods that will are anti-inflammatory on their own. Also help to the fiber to keep our gut microbiome happy so that they can make their, you know, byproducts that are anti-inflammatory as well. And that and all just of- to say work. too, if you're listening and thinking, I think people here are whole food plant-based and think I got to be a vegan. You do not have to be a vegan. It's about mm -hmm. eating more plants, getting a serving or two or three or four 
of produce at every single meal and snack. Again, yeah. over time, like I love the fact that you didn't just go cold turkey with intermittent fasting, but you can do this over time, mm -hmm. adding more plant foods, particularly the soy foods. In, in Japan, they don't even have a word for hot flashes because they eat so much, you know, tofu, tempeh, adamame. And it's powerful because the soy has, as you said, a phytoestrogen. It's like estrogen. Yeah. It's a plant chemical that as actually can really help. The most phytoestrogen of pretty much all the plants. And so, um, and women who actually have diets rich in soy have less breast cancer than women who don't. So there's, you know, soy's gotten a bad rap. I'm telling you, ladies, it is healthy. If you tolerate it, you should enjoy it. And on a regular basis, it can be really powerful for you. Um, so then I wanted to look at, you know, what I called fuel refocusing. I wanted to look at, you know, we've been so scared of fat. People have sugar addictions. Like, like what if, you know, we utilize going a little bit lower carb, upping the fats, you know, keeping a good solid protein base. So we don't, you know, exacerbate our muscle loss. That's already happening with menopause. Um, you know, at least making sure we're getting enough protein to keep our muscles healthy. Um, and then really looking at micronutrients, specifically fiber, magnesium, looking for good food sources of that. You know, the biggest challenge, the biggest thing that kind of made me blow up on TikTok was this little challenge I did where I was like, hey, if you're frustrated, you feel like you're eating healthy and nothing you're doing is working, try this. And it was basically eat what you normally eat for a couple of weeks and look at these certain nutrients. You know, it was fiber, magnesium, omega-3, vitamin D. And um, look at these nutrients and see how close you get to the recommended daily allowance, just based on your meals. And then if you're falling short, then use food, not supplements, to get your levels up to normal. That video has had 20 million views, you know, in, in its different forms and has really made people think about nutrition differently. They're like, whoa, well, how many calories do I eat? I'm like, don't catch calories. It's only a month. You know, this is an experiment. Just, just do this. Just focus on nutrition. Get a little tracker. Well, free ones available online. There's a million of them now. And track your nutrients and see how you do. And so teaching people to think about food as nutrition and that, you know, did you hit your magnesium goals today? Did you hit your calcium goals today? Did you hit your fiber goals today has just been such a powerful, different way and really resonating with my followers. Yeah, it's really wonderful, too, because, you know, getting away from this whole calorie deprivation, beating yourself up, starving yourself and getting more into doing it because you love and care about yourself and, you know, just doing it and keeping it really simple. What is it about the those specific nutrients that's helpful, the magnesium, the vitamin D? So I was literally sitting at my in-laws house in California. My father-in-law was making coffee and I was like frustrated by something that someone had said. They were just calories, calories, calories. And I was like, okay, let me think. I literally back of the envelope. What nutrients could I pick that if they picked foods rich in that, they would get everything that they needed, you know, for micronutrients. So like if they picked fiber rich foods to get their fiber goals, those foods would also contain magnesium and potassium. And, you know, and so I tried to pick those nutrients that would provide a variety of food so that their entire nutritional profile would be more complete and they'd be healthier. They'd be fuller. They'd have enough fat. You know, the vitamin D is pretty much fat, fine <laughs> fat. They'd have enough fat so that they felt full and satisfied and everything would be humming and they would just be able to stick to this so much easier. So what are your favorite foods? We talked about soy. We talked about leafy greens in terms of getting- So my, my go-tos, um, uh, last night, you know, I 
love to eat the rainbow. Like, so last night I got home a little bit late. It's been a little busy over here with everything blowing up on social. So my sweet husband made dinner and he, um, you know, I love avocado. I'm going to have an avocado a day somehow in my, you know, I love them. They're so good for me. They help me meet my fiber and my healthy fat goals. And he had made this gorgeous salad with like um, sunflower seeds and, you know, mixed lettuces and some tomatoes. And he had, we make our dressings from scratch and it's usually just French mustard with um, lemon juice and olive oil, salt and pepper, you know, so he'd made that with, and then he had like uh, grilled some um, sugar snap peas. And then we had this little piece of lean steak with that had some spinach and a little bit of Parmesan. And uh, it was unbelievable. It was so good. And um, another thing that I really love, I have no dairy intolerances whatsoever. I'm Cajun. That doesn't typically run in my gene pool. And so I can enjoy dairy in moderation. And so we don't drink milk at our house. It's not a thing, but we'll have some cheese. But I do like plain Greek yogurt. I use it in a lot of recipes. I use it uh, because of the probiotics that are naturally found. And um and I'll take that Greek yogurt as a base. I'll add some berries for tartness, for color, for anthocyanins, for fiber. I'll throw on whatever nut I feel like that day. And then I'll add chia seeds, flax seeds, and some hemp, uh, ground flax, and then some hemp seeds. And that really helps me round out that dish. Um, you're making me hungry thinking about it. <laughs> I know it's a- it's great too. Greek yogurt is such an amazing go-to because it's super high in protein. Yeah. And it, it, yeah, I get my protein goals, my fat goal. I mean, like I am on such a good path for the day and it's so filling that I can't eat it. You know, I'm kind of it's something if I'm working from my desk, I will just pick at it, you know, for over a couple of hours because I, and it's just delicious. So I love it. It also helps with sugar cravings. That's what I get from women all the time. And I tell them to, you know, first manage your mood. So if you're not running to food to manage your mood, but then also manage the blood sugar levels because the Mm -hmm. fiber, the protein, the fat helps keep our blood sugar level really even. Whereas if you're eating a lot of carbohydrates, especially refined, the insulin levels go up and go down and they're, you know, that's creating Mm -hmm. that inflammation again. So one of my tips, like to, to my students and my patients is, you know, every meal and snack, your goal should be to have a healthy fat, a carb and a protein all together. And whether that's apples and peanut butter or, you know, uh, Triscuit and a piece of cheese, you know, whatever floats your boat. When you do that, you are making the hormones that control your hunger and satiety and where and how you store fat, your insulin, your cortisol, and all those gut hormones work for you instead of against you. So it's always better to try to get all of that every time you eat something, because the protein is sending a signal to your brain saying, I'm, I'm good. I'm full. It also, you know, makes things travel a little bit slower through the gut, which makes you feel, I mean, all these hormones are designed to keep us healthy. If we can get them to work in a way that serves us. Yeah. And just going back to one of your first points about giving people SSRIs because they had depression, women at midlife have the highest rate of depression for any group for age and gender and getting your microbiome healthy can actually help you fight depression. Yes, absolutely. A healthy gut microbiome. And, and, um, and we'll touch on HRT in a minute. Um, there's some power there as well. You know, there's an interesting statistic. I think it's 10% or 20% of women in their 20s are on an SSRI. Wow. Okay. And that number doubles in perimenopause. Wow. 
And yes, the, uh, the incidence of, of mental health disorders does increase in perimenopause independently of age, but we are over prescribing SSRIs when we should be treating the symptoms. We should be treating menopause, but instead we're treating the symptoms. Um, and so women are just giving it out as a panacea for, well, you're a little bit crazy right now here, this will help you, you know, instead of treating the cause. Well, that's the beauty of doing all of this is that you are treating everything. You're treating your whole body and there's no downsides to eating this way. You'll feel better. You'll look better. You'll have more confidence. Your brain will be sharper. So let's, you just mentioned HRT and that's something that mm -hmm. I'm actually considering. If you've been listening to me, you know, I had breast cancer last year and my functional medical doctor, you know, has recommended that I go on HRT on postmenopausal, but I'm sort of questioning it. I'm curious, what's your take on HRT? So let's leave the cancer discussion aside just for a second. Let's, you know, if you don't have what would be considered to be a potential contraindication, you're otherwise healthy, you don't have active cancer, you don't have unexplained vaginal bleeding, you don't have active liver disease or cardiocoronary artery disease. So there's no reason that you shouldn't be a candidate other than you don't want it. Okay. Um, I'm a huge fan. Besides what we've known forever is that it's magical if you're suffering from hot flashes and night sweats and um, your osteopenia, osteoporosis and your genital urinary syndrome of menopause. What we're finding out in the latest studies, um, when the other, like the, the American Heart Association, they went back and looked at the WHI data, which is the Women's Health Initiative, mm -hmm. and looked at it from the perspective of a cardiologist. You see, when the WHI, the study stopped in 2002, but they kept collecting data, I think for another 16 years. So the women who were treated, they stopped treating them, but they continued to follow them and their health progress and their labs and whatnot. And what the Heart Association says is, look, women who were treated with hormone replacement therapy at a young age have less cardiovascular disease, less death from cardiovascular disease, less all-cause mortality, and less cancer, overall cancer risk. There's something protective about estrogen. So the shorter your time period, estrogen-free, the healthier you tend to be and the longer your health span, the longer your lifespan and health span. So that is the conversation I'm having with patients right now. If you are not given the opportunity or you chose not to, they, it, it requires a little more investigation after the age of 60, or really it's within 10 years of your menopause. If you're greater than 10 years, I like to see a calcium score on a patient and look at her labs and see what her risk of cardiovascular disease is. And if her calcium score is nice and low, then we have a conversation. I don't have a lot of data to say because we didn't study women at your age. Um, who have done well on hormone therapy all these years and should we keep going or you've never been on it. Um, what we do know that is if you have pre-existing coronary artery disease or are on the Alzheimer dementia spectrum, a hormone therapy after 10 years, you know, you've gone 10 years with no, no natural estrogen, you might potentially make those diseases worse. So really, it's and it's not a blanket one size fits all. It's an individual discussion on risk. And as we talked about earlier, you as a patient get to decide your risk tolerance. It is not up to the doctor to gatekeep your health. Okay. 
It is not up to the doctor to decide what you can and can't do. It's up to you to decide what your risk factors are. Now, they may say, I would do this or I wouldn't do this, but they should not gatekeep your access to hormone therapy. That seems to be a problem with a huge amount of practitioners today. Yeah, that's an amazing point that you are in charge of your health and you're doing yourself a favor by listening to podcasts like this, reading, getting information. And if you don't like what you're being told, you can choose another practitioner. So that's a question I have for you. How do people go about finding someone who is going to support the lifestyle change, who's going to listen to them, who is well-educated? How do you find a great OBGYN? So um, one option is on our website at galvestondiet.com. We have a group of providers that were recommended by our followers. So it's not doctors I know personally. It is Betty and, and Sally and Tamika who have graciously written a <laughs> testimonial on their amazing menopause experience. And all we've done is compile them by state and city so that hopefully you can find someone that one of our followers recommended. It's our recommended physicians list. Again, we just verified that they're actually practicing, but I don't know these people. The North American Menopause Society, which we call NAMS in our world, NAMS has a list of certified providers. So someone who, you, most of their providers are, are nurse practitioners or um, physician extenders. Um, but NAMS has a tremendous amount of resources for you as a patient to go and read and see what the latest recommendations are. They also have a list of certified providers. Um, there are physicians on there as well, but it, it's kind of heavy on the physician extenders. A lot of OBGYNs like myself, I have not become NAMS certified. I didn't even know that was a thing. Um, I didn't even know NAMS existed before my journey through all this, you know, and it, they're amazing. And one of these days I'll get around to taking the test and getting certified, but I feel like I, I know it all. <laughs> so when I'm board certified in OBGYN, so, um, it's one more test to take another fee to pay, but it's also the national menopause foundation, which is just started, which is great. I was amazed this, you know, as you said, the 94,000 articles, when you put menopause versus pregnancy, and we're starting to look at this and also, you know, something that I find so interesting with myself and so many people that follow me that I know is the alcohol issue. That oh, yeah. So many women, when they go through menopause, like I can't drink to, I mean, not, I was a heavy drinker beforehand, but that one glass of wine just makes me feel awful. And I'm finding a lot of women have trouble metabolizing alcohol. Yes. Going through menopause. We are seeing tremendous sleep disruption and circadian disruption with alcohol way more than in pre-menopause. I mean, it happens to all of us, but there's something at the way we are metabolizing alcohol in perimenopause and menopause that we can no longer, if we want to enjoy a good night's sleep and sleep is critical for everything. I know I can do one glass and I'll be okay. Um, not one every night, you know, but an occasional one glass I'll sleep as long as I go to sleep like four hours after that glass. Um, but if I have more than one, I am making the choice to sacrifice my sleep that night. There's no way around it. And I, I, you know, this is a big investment, the Aura Ring, uh -huh. and I don't know sponsorship from them, but I love data and I'm fascinated. I have my Apple Watch that I track all my workouts, my heart rate, and now this does my sleep. And it has taught me, you made that choice and this is, you're paying for it, you know? And when I don't sleep, I do much worse the next day, the next two days sometimes. 
Yeah, that's, that's a good, sleep is very important. I mean, I know you have a whole toolkit with five different things. We've talked about nutrition. Yeah. Um, we've talked about sleep. Let's talk about exercise and stress. And then maybe oh. we talk a little bit about pharmacology, um, but let's talk about exercise and stress. So exercise, you know, we, we're going to lump it into three categories. So we have cardiovascular exercise, we have uh, resistance training, strength training, and we have balance. And you, all three are important. You cannot ignore any of the three. Cardiovascular exercise is to keep your heart strong and your brain strong. Resistance training is to keep your bones and muscles strong. And then balance, if you're not doing something with your balance, then you're going to, you know, your whole body is trying to unbalance you as we age. And through the menopause process, we see vertigo going up. We see, you know, gait problems going up. We see musculoskeletal issues going up. And if I could go back and tell my 25-year-old self anything, it would be stop doing aerobics, um, pick up some weights. You know, we, uh, my whole mindset for 40 years was we work out to be skinny, that skinny is the goal, skinny is healthy, skinny is, you know, my social currency. And I enjoyed that for a very long time. And now that I have all these tools and measurements and, you know, follow people like Peter Atia and look and really look at things in terms of longevity and health, skinny is the worst thing you can be. I mean, that is, that is, you know, it's just as bad as obesity. You know, there's a, there's a very much a U-shaped right. curve on, on body mass index and muscle mass, you know, outside of body mass index, low muscle mass is just as dangerous as having excessive visceral fat. And so it, it, I, you know, and I'm genetically have low muscle and I have to work at it to, to hang on to what I have and try to build some. And so, you know, I have lots of conversations in my clinic. I have a measuring device to measure muscle mass. And so, you know, I have a body scanner and it tells visceral fat. And so we have big conversations around, you know, percentages of time spent in each exercise. But if you are not carving out time for your sleep, your exercise and your stress reduction, it's going to be really hard for you to enjoy your best health. Everybody wants a magic pill. Everybody's just give me, a, I had a woman sit down in my clinic and just put her hands on my desk and look me in the eyes and say, I'm just here to be skinny. I'm just here to be skinny. Bring me back my skinny. And I was like, I, that's not how I'm here to make you healthy. And we're going to have a hard time finding some common ground here. You know, the strongest really words. I was listening to an interview with um, Jane Fonda. And she's 85 and she just keeps hitting home of like, even though she was like the queen of aerobics, but now it's like, yes, be strong, be strong. You want to be able to like lift up that baggage when you are on the plane and, and strong is sexy and you're new, it's helping you with your hormonal balance and helping you with that bone mass and all of, all of those things. It doesn't have to be crazy. It can just be, you know, 20 minutes, a couple of times a week. So we talked about exercise. Let's talk about stress reduction. Why is it important? And what are some of the ways that you help people reduce it? So stress reduction looks like different things to different people. It is unique as we are. And where right now what's working for me is meditation and journaling. I'm leading a big challenge across social media right now. We have almost 80,000 people in, <laughs> signed up for the challenge and it's a belly fat challenge. And one of the um, rules is spending, you doing one activity per day, which is stress reduction. So depending on the person, it could be prayer. It could be a walk. It could be pet time. It could be meditation. It could be journaling. It could be yoga. It's where you are getting out of your own head and just letting everything go. However that looks for you, but taking carving out time. And for me, it's like six, seven minutes. I don't, you know, but it is first thing in the morning. I don't 
I'm trying, you know, in this challenge is a big challenge for me not to pick up my phone and check social media. I run a business on social media. So it's very easy for me to go down the rabbit hole, you know? And so to like go right to my meditation app, sit up, take a deep breath and do my five minute meditation then take out my little journal and write down the things that I'm grateful for and what I'm giving up to God in, in my house. It's God. So, um, could be the universe, could be whatever, but like taking that time to think about the things that I am so fortunate to have in my life and taking the time to give up the things that I would usually let drive me crazy and, and interrupt my peace and just give them to the universe. Yeah, that's powerful. Let go of the things that are draining you and bring in more of the things that light you up. So stress reduction, let's talk a little bit about supplements. I love the fact that you're food versed, which is mm -hmm. awesome. But mm -hmm. things like, you know, vitamin D, sometimes your omega-3 fatty acids, even calcium magnesium can be tough. What do you recommend in terms of a healthy supplementation? Do you recommend things like curcumin, which help with inflammation? So, so we have things that we are most likely to be deficient in. Okay. When we think about supplementation, you know, again, you're always supplementing a healthy diet. If we all had perfect nutrition, we would not need a single supplement. Okay. That's hard to do even for me, even for you. And so 90% of my patients are deficient in vitamin D. I don't sit there and eat a slab of salmon every day, you know, and I protect my skin from the sun. I, if you look at the sun damage here, <laughs> you can tell I was better about my face, but my neck is showing <laughs> where Mary Claire put sunscreen for 20 years. And, um, so, um, I almost always have to supplement my patients with vitamin D now I'm checking levels. So I pretty much routinely recommend it. You can supplement about up to 4,000 international units a day without worries of toxicity over that. You really should be monitored by a physician. And now some people may need more than that on a daily basis, but that should be done with regular monitoring of your labs. Um, about if in the standard American diet, most women are getting about 12 grams of fiber in their diet per day. So quite often fiber supplementation can be helpful. Again, you absolutely, especially if you are plant-based, get your fiber from food. However, it can be a struggle. So fiber supplementation can be helpful. Then we have, you know, magnesium, magnesium, about 50% of us are not getting enough in the recommended daily. Um, uh, you're not getting close to where you need to be, but even super physiologic doses of magnesium can be medicinal. So there's a difference between correcting a deficit than taking extra that might be helpful. Um, so magnesium supplementation has been found to be helpful in patients with SSRI resistant depression. It can be really helpful for sleep. Um, it's quite often something that, that I will recommend on a case-by-case -case basis if they're having certain conditions. Things like turmeric, that's not an essential nutrient in the body, but it's a really powerful antioxidant. And it turns out that it's helpful in osteoarthritis. It's helpful in visceral fat deposition. It's helpful in hot flashes. So I'll quite often recommend that one. Um, Omega-3 fatty acids, you know, the pendulum swings on that one. I do combine that with the vitamin D supplement that I've created from, for my followers. And um, so, you know, again, if you're not eating a good sources of omega-3 every day, which would be, you know, we have DHA and EPA, which are found in animal sources typically. And then we have ALA, which is in plant sources. ALA has to be converted in the body to the other, you know, has to be converted in order to be used. 
And that's not a very efficient process. So you have to eat a lot of ALA. So in my nutrition courses, my professor would just say, make sure you're getting one good source of omegas in your diet every day. That should cover you. The labs now are checking omega levels. Um, that was not something that was kind of standard uh, when I went through school. I do check them occasionally in patients. Um, but it seems to be, you know, you can overdo it, but it seems to be a pretty safe um, supplement. Uh, to give. All right. So just to recap, so we've got the nutrition we've talked excessively about whole food, plant-based diet, um, doing intermittent fasting, and also, you know, having the right balance of macronutrients, maybe upping your protein and your fat, lowering your carbohydrate, especially the refined carbs. We talked about exercise, not just doing the cardio. I would add in that too, maybe a little bit of stretching too, because we do lose our range of motion. So mm-hmm. yoga is great to do because you, there's a lot of balance involved in yoga mm-hmm. and you also are doing stretching. Plus it's great. You know, you hit up that body, mind stress reduction as well, making sure you're getting seven to eight hours of quality sleep. Um, reducing your stress. We talked a little bit about pharmacology. I would add into that. I use estradiol topically, and I found that that's been great for vaginal dryness. So, oh yeah, my, so my OBGYN recommended. Everyone, um, and- there's almost no contraindication whatsoever to vaginal estrogen, estradiol, and so it's super amazingly helpful for atrophic vaginitis, which is general urinary syndrome of menopause. Nothing works better. Nothing. Right. No lubricant, no magical potion. Estradiol is the way to go. Even with active breast cancer, it's yep. safe. Even with blood clotting, it is safe. It, you know, it's never been associated. It's such a low dose. It's It acts very locally. I am such a huge fan and my patients are so grateful to have that. I was really, really grateful when I started. I have a, a new partner, a fiance, and it was just like, oh my God, what is going on here? Yeah, it's just been a real lifesaver that has um, changed our intimacy. Um, And then if you're looking for a doctor and your doctor isn't listening to you, I think that that's a real hard thing for a lot of patients. I know through my cancer journey, I really found not everybody, you know, would listen to me and honor my wishes. And you have to like stand strong, go to the galvestonediet.com. Is that correct? Yeah, we have um, in our blogs, we have strategies to help you advocate for yourself at your healthcare provider's office, articles you can print out, the medical journal articles to hand to them. They, you know, and not to throw OBGYNs under the bus or other practitioners, they're they're not forced to learn this stuff. It's not accentuated in our training. We receive less than two to three percent of our training was on menopause, sadly, even though. 30 to 40% of women at any given time are in their menopause journey and need help. Um, There, you know, you have to have high throughput in clinic in order to be financially viable. And so they're under a lot of pressure from their employers to see patients as fast as possible. And menopause is hard. Menopause takes a lot of time to untangle and tease and develop a plan that's going to work for the patient. And so, you know, don't be shocked if the if the person who was so great at delivering your babies and you know d- gave you awesome contraceptive advice and did your hysterectomy and all your surgeries is a horrible menopause provider because it's just not their fault. Yeah, absolutely. So go. It's okay to look elsewhere for that, and I would highly recommend picking up Dr. Haver's book. It's amazing. It's called again the Galveston Diet. I have learned so much. I'm always learning new things. 
So thank you so much for being here. Thanks for this having me. A delightful conversation. If you are enjoying the show, do leave me a review. I would love to know what you think about the show. You can always reach out to me at themidlifewhisperer.com. That's themidlifewhisperer.com. And I hope you have enjoyed today's show as much as I have. And you have written some things down and you know that you can take action and menopause, although it's necessary, most women go through it. Suffering is optional. So thank you all for being here. And thank you again, Dr. Haber. It's been a pleasure. Midlife can be challenging. You may be sandwiched between growing kids and aging parents, dealing with menopause or a health issue, and trying to find work-life balance. Or maybe your life looks good on the outside, but inside you're feeling stuck and wondering how to get your confidence, energy, and joy back. Hi, I'm Dr. Ellen, the Midlife Whisperer, and I hear you and I've got you. Think of me as the one-stop shop for all your midlife needs. I'm a psychologist, registered dietitian, nutritionist, board-certified health and wellness coach, and mindful self-compassion teacher. I'm also an author and podcast host with over 30 years of experience empowering midlife women. I provide inspiration and wisdom to help you transform your health, your mindset, your relationships, and your life so you can rock midlife. 